Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Because Alan Hall didn't fit the witness descriptions. No. They just withheld the initial statements of Brendan and Kameeson where they described the attacker and also the statement of the ambulance driver who the boys had repeated this description to. But even more seriously, they deliberately altered the statement of a crucial witness, Ronald Turner, who'd seen someone running from the crime scene. Welcome to Crimes NZ, the podcast where we talk to the people closest to some of this country's most notorious crimes. In this episode, Charlotte Ryan looks at what could be one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in New Zealand's criminal history. In 1986, Alan Hall was sent to prison for the murder of Arthur Easton. Hall spent 19 years in jail, but nearly four decades fighting for justice. In 2022, his convictions were finally quashed. Charlotte speaks to Stuff's senior investigative reporter Mike White about the case, and then she's joined by Alan's brother Jeff. So Arthur Easton was murdered in his Papakura home Sunday night, October 1985. He was a father of five and he worked with the New Zealand Post Office so was responsible for hundreds of staff and all telecommunications infrastructure in the South Auckland. What happened the night of the murder, Mike? Yeah, so it's a quiet Sunday evening, like you say, at eight o'clock, and an intruder comes into the back of the Easton's home in Papakura. Um, he's surprised by one of Arthur Easton's sons, um, and eventually a, a brawl, a fight breaks out between the intruder, Arthur Easton, and two of his sons, Brendan, who's only 16, and Kim. Um, the fight goes on for quite a long time. The intruder's punched and hit repeatedly over the head with a wooden squash racket till it breaks. He eventually escapes out the back door and runs away. However, Arthur Easton has been stabbed with uh, a, a bayonet that the intruder had and dies in his hallway. His sons, Brendan and Kim, are also injured. But the intruder, as he as he escapes, he leaves behind the murder weapon, which is this bayonet, and a woolen hat that he was wearing. And a muddy footprint, too. Yes, there's a footprint found. And, I mean, for the first... Uh, two months, really, of this police investigation, they were following the eyewitness accounts of Brendan and, and Kim Easton and other people who had seen someone fleeing from the scene. And they all described a powerfully built Maori person. Um, but two months later, uh, when police are doing canvases around the Auckland area, they learn that a 23-year-old uh, factory worker, Alan Hall, owned a bayonet very much like the one found at the scene, and also had access to a, a, a hat identical to the one that was found at the scene. And so from that point on, the police investigation changes and Alan Hall comes to be the prime suspect for the murder of Arthur Easton, especially given that Alan was admitted that he was walking around in the area of the Easton's home at, the, at that time on the Sunday evening. So can you just explain to me, a bayonet, what is it? Is it like a a, a knife? 
Yeah, it's something that uh, in the military is attached to the end of a rifle. It's a very, very sharp knife. This was uh, from, it was a Swedish army one. Um, and there were only a limited number in the country. And so I think, you know, it's fair to say uh, right from the outset that, that it was reasonable for the police to look very closely at Alan Hall as possibly the perpetrator of the crime, given that he could be linked to the bayonet and the woolen hat, these two crucial items that are found at the scene, and that he would, said he was out walking in the area uh, around the Eastern's home at the time of the murder, and therefore didn't have a clear alibi of people saying, no, he was with me, etc. But there were problems with Alan Hall being supposedly the, the, the culprit for this. So you've got to remember that the two Eastern boys both described the attacker being a, a very powerfully built Maori, um, someone who was good at martial arts. Um, and that was also the description that was given by uh, someone who, who saw someone running from the crime scene at the, uh, just after the murder was committed. Um, the Eastern boys described the person as being right-handed. And so you had a, a, a completely different picture painted to Alan Hall, who was five foot seven, not six foot. He was weedy. He was 62 kilograms. He was asthmatic. He was left-handed and he was Pākehā. And there was no sign of Alan being involved in a fierce brawl or being beaten over the head with a squash racket till it broke, according to his employer who saw him the next morning. So this presented a huge problem for the police and the prosecution in trying to show that Alan Hall was the culprit. And so what they did um, was, was really the crux of, of the case that we've seen unfold 37 years later in the Supreme Court this year. It's so crazy. You say, well, do you think that we've ever had such a blatant example of police manipulating evidence before? Yeah, well, perhaps we should just explain quickly what, what the police did. They, so they, because Alan Hall didn't fit the witness descriptions. No. They just withheld the initial statements of Brendan and Kameeson where they described the attacker as being Mari and also the statement of the ambulance driver who the boys had repeated this description to. But even more seriously, they deliberately altered the statement of a crucial witness, Ronald Turner, who'd seen someone running from the crime scene describing them as Mari or dark-skinned. And they just didn't give the first two statements that Ronald Turner made to Alan Hall's lawyers or... or um, or Alan Hall himself. And then the statement that was read from Ronald Turner to the court had all references to the offender being Māori or dark-skinned removed from it. All this done without Ronald Turner even being told about this. He only learned of it much later, much to his shock, several years later. And so the police also conducted really wholly unscientific experiments. They tried hypnotising the Eastern boys. Um, all in an effort to make it seem possible that Alan Hall was actually the killer. And they succeeded because Alan Hall was convicted of murder the following year in 1986 and sentenced to life in prison. But I think you're right that, uh, that there's probably the only other example of such blatant uh, tampering with the evidence would be the Arthur Allen Thomas case um, where police planted uh, cartridge shells in order to frame Arthur Allen Thomas. But this is even more blatant in the, in the respect that the police have admitted that they changed witness statements here. So it was, yeah, wholly brazen. Yeah. And the Eastern boys who actually fought with the man who murdered their father, did, were they asked to identify Alan? Or, you know, did they look at him and, and did they come out and say, it doesn't look like the guy we saw? 
No, the, I mean the the they had given statements early, which you know their first statements were that it was a tall, powerfully built Maori person um, who was right-handed. Police did reconstructions in the hallway and tried to uh, tell the boys that maybe they weren't quite so sure. So by the time of the trial, the boys weren't quite sure of of the person that they had uh, been involved in the, the you know fighting and, and had. Uh, been the attacker that had killed their father. Why do you think the police were so determined to pin this on him? Well, you've got to think that it's it's a very high-profile crime mm. um, and there's a lot of public pressure uh, to find the culprit. But also, you know, again, it, it was fair for them to look at Alan Hall, given that these two crucial bits of evidence that were left at the scene, the bayonet and the woolen hat, sort of did lead back to Alan Hall. Alan had sort of said in his interviews that he was uh, that he thought that the, the bayonet at the scene was his, um, and he gave conflicting and, uh, uh, ex- explanations about what had happened to it, that he'd lost it, that he'd thrown it away, that it had been stolen, etc. So the police didn't believe him. You've got to also remember that Alan Hall at the time uh, was described as intellectually slow um, or backward. He's subsequently been diagnosed as autistic. And Alan was interviewed by the police for eight hours on one occasion, 15 hours on another occasion without a lawyer, even though he asked for one. And so this was a pretty brutal interview that he went through. Um, And at the end of it, the police thought they got their man, but there were all these things that just didn't fit, but they made fit. So what happened uh, at that point? So Alan Hall's convicted. His family, who's always supported him, incredible family, um, they, Alan appealed. That was rejected by the Court of Appeal. Then three times he made applications for the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. That's a sort of a last gasp appeal to the Governor-General for a conviction to be reconsidered. But each time uh, that was rejected uh, on the basis of, of uh, advice from the Ministry of Justice. And so Alan stayed in jail till 1994. Uh, he was then paroled, but he was recalled to prison in 2012 for alleged breaches of his parole conditions. And he stayed there for another 10 years until the parole board lease released him in um, March this year. And that's where you get up to date now with what's happened this year, which has been um, quite a dramatic series of events. Have you investigated who you think the police might be? I mean, what happened this year was that uh, was extraordinary. Crown law, which oversees prosecutions in New Zealand, was basically confronted with this evidence presented by Alan Hall's lawyer, Nick Chisland, and investigator uh, Tim McKinnell, who spent the last four years looking at this case. And I think it's important to know that this case has always been controversial, but all the attempts to kind of prove Alan wasn't responsible for killing Arthur Eason have been rebuffed by the authorities. So in this year at the Supreme Court, Crown Law made the extraordinary concession that there'd been a serious miscarriage of justice and that Alan Hall's conviction should be quashed. The Supreme Court, again, in an almost unprecedented move, immediately accepted that and quashed Alan Hall's convictions. So that leaves us with the the big question of who, if, if it wasn't Alan Hall, who did do it? Now, the police had a very clear suspect initially uh, in their investigations, and they are now conducting two reviews of the case. And that may lead to them reopening the case. The problem is it's 37 years down the track. People's mm-hmm. memories have faded. 
people have died um, and evidence has been lost. So there's the possibility that more forensic testing could be done now, um, but that's in the hands of the police. As I say, they've got two reviews of the investigation going on and um, it's just an, a case of being patient and seeing where that leads them. Yes, of course. I believe we've got Alan's brother, Jeff Hall, on the line now. Jeff, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I think one of the things that stands out to me so much about this case is the solid support of your family. Can you give us a little bit of an insight of what it was like for you or while Alan was being investigated and then found, found guilty? I can. You know, it was such a shock when it when it happened. Um, we were a, a tight-knit family, you know, six siblings and mum and a dad, and and we were, we were close that way, and, and we looked after each other where we could, and we also had a group of friends around us. And when this happened, it was just a huge shock because we just, we've just followed the New Zealand way where we, you know, believed in what the police did and, we, um, you know, just, just, just Kiwis in a sense. And all of a sudden our brother was taken away from us. You know, he's one of uh, New Zealand's most vulnerable sons. He's, he's a... Um, you know, being autistic and and just a, just a nice guy trying to do the best he can. And uh, you know, we were just in. I think Mum described it as, as a white shock. You know, it's just pure shock. You know, when this had happened, and uh, we just didn't know where to turn. This is unexperienced in this sort of thing. We just had to um, stick together, um, form a plan, and just see where it could take us. Um, which is. You know, it, it, luckily we we found a lawyer in Peter Williams who had a, um, a you know a good name mm. um, and defence lawyers back in those days. So we felt comfortable that you know we just follow the line of of the truth. Mm. Um, Alan had nothing to do with this, so we just had to follow that through, and and surely justice will show in the end. Yeah, is it true that uh, your mother Shirley, she, you know, who's one of his biggest supporters, did she end up having to sell the family home to pay the legal bills? That's right. Yeah, the bills were um, were coming in thick and fast. I remember ten thousand dollar bills, and we were all scraping our money together um, to to help Mum pay um, pay these bills that came through. Um, and uh, the it was just a a lot of money. There were you know, extended family that were um, helping mum out with money. So it was just a, a stress on top of, of a stressful situation. And uh, finally, um, after trial, and, and the, we knew the fight was going to take us much further, we needed to get uh, detectives involved and do our own research and, and have them, uh, do the appeal. Um, so we had to make that decision and we had to sell the family home. Yeah. Jeff, tell me about the 8th of June this year. That was when your brother Alan was acquitted. What was that day like for you and for Alan and, and your whole family? Wow. <laughs> uh, that's a huge day for us, yeah. a huge day. We we all, the night before, we were all together in, um, in my hotel room and we had a meeting um, and you know, it was just lovely seeing all the family together from overseas and different parts of New Zealand. We congregated into one spot, and we'd all been through this together. And, and Alan's there with us, and we just had this this meeting. And I kept an eye on Alan. On you know, I, there's a lot going on for him, and and I just wanted to keep an eye on him. And he actually thrived in the family environment. Um, but the next morning, the eighth of June, when um, 
know, pre pre court, and I just noticed he was getting a little bit um, anxious. Um, and I think you can probably see in some of the television news articles, uh, uh, news reports, where he'd sort of cover himself up. He had a big jacket. He just he was shy of the cameras, and he just he he just felt the pressure then, and he just wanted to go inside and and um, you know just have his family around him. Um, but um, I was watching him through the day, and he was just. Um, taking it in the stride, and but he knew what was happening. He really knew what was happening. So uh, we got to that last hour when I just started uh, reading the um, the final the final path that we're you know that Alan Hall has been through a lot here, and mm. this is a grave injustice, and we acquit you, Alan. And I just sort of just I leaned over and I looked at him and just said, you know, there's a lot going on here decades, four generations of family have supported you through this moment and and I just watched him and he just sort of smiled and he got up <laughs> and then turned around and looked and we all started applauding him and he just gave us a nice bow Aww. and we exited. It was just lovely. So now you're in the process of trying to get compensation and mm. even though he's been acquitted by the Crown Law and Supreme Court, he now needs to prove to a King's Council that he's innocent. How's that been going? Well, this is this is a, a point. You know, we we do understand the bureaucracy of it. There's a lot of money involved, um, and it's, it's taxpayer money. And, and basically, the crown have to do the right thing uh, from what they they what they believe. Look, they you've, you've had the Supreme Court's you know um, acquit Alan. You've had the Crown Law say there's no way we're going to take this back to trial. They they know what has happened to Alan. Um, I just wish the um, justice minister would would look at that and take that into um, into account and just um, and waiver the that process of Alan having to prove himself again and then just look at an amount. But they've decided to uh, to go through this process. So you know we've just got to um, put all the paperwork out in front of um, uh, Justice Henson and let him see and let him make his decision on just how innocent. He feels Ellen is. Mm. Now you're hoping um, to be awarded over six million dollars. How long do you think this could take? Um, I don't know. Mm. I'm not an expert in this area, but people sort of mentioned, you know, could it take up to a year? Uh, depends what you know what they need to find, or, or it could take uh, six months. So I don't expect to have any results back by. March in 2023. I asked Mike this before, but I wonder how you feel. Do you want to see the police officers involved in the manipulation of the evidence brought to justice? They have to. Mm. They have to. I mean, it, it, look, depending on these inquiries that they do, um, this evidence uh, didn't happen by mistake. This evidence that convicted Ellen didn't happen by mistake. It, it happened by design. And that was at the hands of, of the New Zealand police. Mm. And it's caused a man 19 years in jail, and there has to be accountability for this. Yeah. Mike White, do you think, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's a possibility that the police could be charged? There's always a possibility. We don't have a great track record of holding uh, police accountable for uh, their wrongdoing in, in cases like this. Um, you've got to remember, despite a Royal Commission finding that police planted evidence against Arthur Allen Thomas, no police were ever held responsible for that. Uh, maybe the climate's different now. Maybe the people involved uh, are different now. 
I think there's certainly a case uh, for the police looking very closely at the actions of some of the officers, some of those involved in this investigation and what they did. And that is part of the police review. Uh, one of the police officers who was very closely involved in this investigation has died now, of course, uh, which makes things more difficult. Uh, but I, I think for the sake of Alan, for the sake of his family and the sake of confidence of all New Zealanders in our justice system, I think that's something that should be looked really, really closely at. This must be still so tragic as well for the Easton family. Their dad, Arthur Easton, was murdered. Um, and, you know, the police have been going for the wrong man and, and everything. Has your family, Jeff, been in touch with the Easton family over the years? No, we've, we've actually given them um, um, the space because... Uh, we know that they believed in the uh, in the justice system, mm. and so they followed the justice system and let the justice system um, take this process of where where that was to lead to, uh, and leading up to the Supreme Court on the 8th of June. And so we haven't approached them directly. Our, our we have via um, our investigator just to see if they uh, wanted to talk. There has been a little bit of correspondence going on, and mm. we've given that option. But, you know, one of the things that I would really want, and I've spoken to our investigator legal team about it, is that if the Eastern family need anything from us, anything at all, I mean, we've got an, a mountain of paperwork, um, and it, it spells out what happened to their dad. And I firmly believe, you know, when you know the truth about something, it helps to heal you. And, and I hope, um, I just want that paperwork um, and evidence available to them yeah. if they need it at any time. Mike, can you tell us anything about the police's first suspect? Uh, no, not without getting into trouble. And certainly we don't want to do anything that might um, hamper in any way uh, possible police reinvestigation of this case and bring the perpetrator to justice. Um, the police are the right people to be handling these inquiries, and so we'll just leave it with them. Um, but, you know, I just reiterate what Jeff says that we hope that. Uh, that that's what the police eventually do. And it's certainly what the Eastern family want, because I have um, been in touch with the Eastern family uh, this year, and they very much uh, want this investigation reopened to bring the real killer to justice. They said our family placed their trust in the criminal justice system and it failed both the halls and, and themselves. And they support a full inquiry into what happened. And um, the, Their hearts go out to Alan, his mother, Shirley, and, and the entire Hall family. Jeff, tell me, how is Alan now? Does he talk much about life in prison and what it was like, or is that something he doesn't like to talk about? That he doesn't really talk about you know, life in prison at all. I mean, we actually, Alan was actually contacted by, well, his lawyer was contacted by the police and asked Alan if he'd go a witness and things that happened in jail. And he said, no, I cannot. And um, he just doesn't, he's put the prison life behind him as best he can. Um, but I do know that um, he's been damaged. He's he's not the same brother that, that they took away um, in 1986. The smile, the beaming smile he had in 1986 is not there anymore. Um, and glimpses of it when he gets all his family around, you know, I can see he lights up. So so that's important for his healing. But um, there's been a lot of damage done to him. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me as his brother to, to see this. And, and just how long is this going to take to heal you? 
all the professional help I need to help Alan. Um, he's quite reserved in asking for help. Um, um, so it's it's a long, long process. And I just need to provide him a warm, safe place and the option for when he's ready to talk and when ready to to um you know, to share his feelings about it, then then that's there for him uh, through me. But of course it's uh, you know, you've got to understand that that um someone like Alan, um um the, the autism he does hold a lot in mm. and um and I just always give him opportunities to talk and that helps a lot when you when you can talk buddy. Um yeah, it's um I mean, this, is, this actually stems back to part of the compensation. There's a small amount inside the compensation that is to help people that have been wrongly, wrongfully convicted uh, to reintegrate into the community. And that's help Alan now. You know, he doesn't need it when they decide he's innocent. You know, and, and I, it's, I find that frustrating. How, yes, how is his integration going back into society? Is he living with family? He's living with me. Oh, great. I'm, I'm, I'm looking up to him and... Um, and because I have uh, um, uh, my children and he loves to have the family around and he lights up and he buys more presents and things that, that he can afford. And um, yeah, um, so, yeah, he's, he's, he's doing all right. He's good sort of going out for walks. I've got, I've got him a drone and he's flying a drone around. And, you know, he's, uh, he's slowly sort of coming back into it again. And, uh, but, um, yeah. 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 Well, in fact, I was just uh, this weekend past. We took him. I went down to Wellington with him, and we went for a trip. He really wanted to go to Te Papa, and he had a lovely time going around Te Papa. He was in, through. Uh, he loved uh, the Galapagos. Sorry, I'm tongue tied. Um, and uh, yeah, he just loved going through there. And then he went. We went to a wicker workshop, and he just loved the Thunderbird Go displays in there. And it was, you know, it was great. Yeah, I could see him sort of light up and enjoy that. Oh, how magic that you're able to create these memories now with him, Jeff. Mm. Yeah. And, Mike, any further thoughts or anything you would love to say to our listeners? Oh, look, I think Alan Hall's case hasn't been as celebrated as maybe the ones of Scott Watson or Mark Lundy or David Bain, etc. Um, but in time, this case is going to be recognised as one of the greatest travesties in, in New Zealand's criminal justice his, history, a, a terrible stain. Uh, on our justice system and the fact that it's taken 37 years to be rectified it, it, it makes it even worse but thank goodness we've finally got it right now Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ and a big thanks to Mike White and Jeff Hall for sharing their stories with us Crimes NZ is hosted by me, Jesse Mulligan, and produced by Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis, and Ayana Piperhelian. This week, Charlotte Ryan interviewed our guests. Crimes NZ, the podcast, is put together by Liz Garten, and the executive producer of RNZ Podcasts is Tim Watkin. Follow Crimes NZ on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs> 